The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, December 20th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how an athlete's blood could boost cognitive function, potentially in non-athletic people. Plus, the origin and meanings of the song The Twelve Days of Christmas. And Christmas in July takes on a whole new meaning with cruises designed specifically for professional Santas. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So last Monday, I talked about research that has shown that just 10 minutes of moderate-intensity running is enough to boost cognitive performance and mood. But not everyone can run, so what should they do? According to a new study published last week in the journal Nature, they should inject themselves with the blood of athletes. Okay, not really. Please do not go out there and inject yourself with someone else's blood, but that is what researchers did to mice in the study. The study, published last Wednesday in the journal Nature, found that sedentary mice injected with blood from mice who had been assigned exercise regimes performed better on memory and learning tests. They also had reduced inflammation in their brains of the type that is involved in Alzheimer's and other neurological disorders. The study builds on a wealth of research showing that proteins outside of the brain produced when exercising can travel to the brain and improve cognitive function and brain health. It also builds on prior research from study lead Tony Wiscure of Stanford indicating that the blood of young mice can reverse age-related reductions in cognitive function in older mice. But this newest study in particular focused on a protein called clusterin, which is produced in the liver and heart muscle cells. So for the study, one group of mice were allowed access to their exercise wheels, and others locked out of them. They could still move around, but they couldn't get a long cardio workout in. Which, by the way, this blew my mind. Apparently mice that run on their wheels all night long, as many like to do, can clock four to six miles each night. That is so much for such tiny creatures. I am very impressed. But anyways, after four weeks, researchers took some of the non-exercising mice and injected them with blood plasma from the mice who did exercise, and the ones who got the plasma outperformed the sedentary ones who didn't get it. Plus, quoting the New York Times, The team also found that the brains of mice with runner blood produced more of several types of brain cells, including those that generate new neurons in the hippocampus, a region involved in memory and spatial learning. A genetic analysis showed that about 1,950 genes had changed in response to the infusion of runner blood, becoming either more or less activated. Most of the 250 genes with the greatest activation changes were involved in inflammation, and their changes suggested that brain inflammation was was reduced. The team tested whether removing any of the four most significant proteins in the runner blood would matter and found that if clusterin was removed, anti-inflammatory effects disappeared. And when mice engineered to have a type of brain inflammation or a version of Alzheimer's were injected with clusterin, it lessened their brain inflammation. End quote. 
Now, we have a long way to go before we can see if anything similar to this would work for humans, but the study did look into the connection between clustering and exercise in humans by studying 20 military veterans with a pre-dementia condition who were put on a six-month exercise program. At the end of the program, the participants did indeed have high levels of clustering in their blood, and they did also perform better on memory and story recall tests. But as Dr. Madhav Tempesetti, a neurologist and senior investigator at the National Institute on Aging, who was not involved in the study, said, quote, It's far too premature to conclude that higher or lower levels of clustering might be either beneficial or not. I don't think we're at the stage yet where people can trade in their treadmills or cancel their gym memberships for a clustering pill or clustering injection, end quote. And just to be clear, though it's super early days, we're probably not talking about some kind of medication that replaces exercise for people who can get it. And it's not like it would give you any of the more physical or potentially emotional benefits of exercise. This would be more for someone for whom has, say, a neurological condition that the increase in clustering could help with, but also has a physical disability or other limitation that prevents them from getting the extended cardio workout required to get the clustering boost. And another thing they'll need to investigate further if some sort of clustering or other protein injection does actually work is timing. Sometimes inflammation is actually helpful and protective in the earlier stages of disease, even if it's harmful later. So just knocking out inflammation-causing proteins altogether too early might not be good. And clustering might not be the best protein. Irisin from the muscles and GPLD1, an enzyme made in the liver, both increased with exercise and led to mice performing better on learning and memory tests in other studies. So there's a ton of questions still, but Dr. Tempesetti agrees that the most interesting part of the study is, quote, the demonstration that there are transferable factors in the blood that seem to convey beneficial effects on the brain that improve learning and memory, end quote. And it is very cool. One more clarification, you wouldn't be, like, sucking an athlete's blood vampire style. They probably wouldn't even use blood transfusions because there's so much more that exists in the blood. The optimal method would be some kind of pill or injection that focuses specifically on the winning protein. In the case of clustering, it binds to cells that line the blood vessels and which become inflamed when a person has Alzheimer's. So Dr. Wiscore told the New York Times that a potential drug would bind to those cells to mimic the anti-inflammatory effects of naturally produced clustering. Given how many unknowns there still are, my biggest takeaway from this study is still the fact that mice are clocking more miles a day than I am on my runs. Four to six miles? I mean, that must take them forever. So I clarified on the December 1st episode that the 12 days of Christmas refers to the days following Christmas, not the ones counting down to it. But I had a lot of people thinking that I was going to share the origins and meaning of the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, so here we go. First, if you are not familiar with the song, I like how Vox described it, quote, A Christmas carol in which the singer brags about all the cool gifts they received from their true love during the 12 days of Christmas. Each verse builds upon the previous one, serving as as a really effective way to annoy family members on road trips, end quote. Even more annoying is that people rarely remember any of the lyrics after the fifth verse, the five golden rings. 
Because of its simple format, it's also one of the most parodied Christmas carols of all time. One of my favorites used to be a pop-punk version that Jared Alange posted to Tumblr almost 10 years ago. It only really holds up if you were into the kind of emo pop-punk scene back in the day, but I'll put a link in the show notes just in case. But of course, the ultimate version is the John Denver and the Muppets one. Can't be beat. In any case, let's really dive in here with some myth-busting first. Ye old email chain lore tells us that the song is a kind of secret code used to teach catechism to Catholic children during the 16 and 1700s when the Catholic Church had to be fairly underground in England due to Anglican oppression. In that theory, the two turtle doves are the Old and New Testaments, the six geese a-laying are the six days of creation, the ten lords a-leaping are the ten commandments, and so on and so forth with the partridge and the pear tree being Jesus. The late William Studwell, professor emeritus at Northern Illinois University and historian of Christmas carols, addressed this in an interview with Religion News Service back in 2008, saying, quote, This was not originally a Catholic song, no matter what you hear on the internet. Neutral reference books say this is nonsense. If there was such a catechism device, a secret code, it was derived from the original secular song. It's a derivative, not the source. End quote. And Snopes adds, quote, the claim appears to date only to the 1990s, marking it as a likely invention of modern-day speculation rather than historical fact. The key flaw in this theory is that the differences between the Anglican and Catholic churches were largely differences in emphasis and form which were extrinsic to scripture. Although Catholics and Anglicans used different English translations of the Bible, all of the religious tenets supposedly preserved by the song The Twelve Days of Christmas, with the possible exception of the number of sacraments, were shared by Catholics and Anglicans alike. And further, there are no obvious relationships between the concepts to be memorized and the symbols used to represent them in the song. In what way do eight maids of milking remind one of the eight Beatitudes? How are the nine ladies dancing supposed to bring the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit to mind? Without any obvious relationships between the symbols and the concepts they symbolize, this song is no more useful as a memory aid than simply memorizing the numbers 1 through 12 would be. End quote. Now, I will add that there is now an earlier citation for the catechism claim, but it only dates to 1979, and the citations are a bit circular, so it's still probably a bit of invented folklore. So then where did the song come from? Quoting again from Vox, The history of the carol is somewhat murky. The earliest known version first appeared in a 1780 children's book called Mirth Without Mischief. Some historians think the song could be French in origin, but most agree it was designed as a memory and forfeits game, in which singers tested their recall of the lyrics and had to award their opponents a forfeit, a kiss or a favor of some kind, if they made a mistake. End quote. Other sources point to Newcastle in northern England as the possible birthplace of the song due to a large number of 19th century citations originating from there, including one that claimed the carol was found on broadsides in the area dating back as early as 1714, which would put it before that 1780s children's book, but this hasn't quite been verified. And while these don't seem to have evolved into the 12 days of Christmas, there are similar songs in other parts of the world. In Scotland's The Yule Days, there are lines about three maids a merry dancing and three swans a merry swimming, and focuses on the 13 Yule Days, but it's not cumulative like the 12 Days of Christmas. Sweden and the Faroe Islands have cumulative songs listing out gifts that count up in order, featuring things like geese, sheep, grain, and barrels. 
And Vox also notes that many variations on the English or perhaps French 12 Days of Christmas have existed over the years. At one point, the gift giver was the singer's mom, not their true love. And some versions have bears abating and ships a-sailing. In northern England, sometimes there were only 10 gifts. And other variations also suggest that perhaps every gift is meant to be a bird, just creatively described in some cases. The version we're most familiar with today came from Frederick Austin, a composer who set the melody and lyrics in 1909, and most notably added the long, drawn-out gold rings bit. So he is the one that you can either blame or thank for that. We're headed into the busiest work week of the year for a certain Mr. S. Claus. In a few days, he and his reindeer will be circumventing the globe with stop-offs at almost every child's house along the way. But even Santa needs a vacation. And over the summer, in the off-season, every year there is a Santa cruise that takes a whole boatload of Santa's and Mrs. Claus's surrogates, the folks who help out the boss by appearing at malls and events when he can't make it, on a seven-day journey. Sometimes they go to Alaska and stop at North Pole-themed haunts. Before it was canceled, their 2020 cruise was set to take them to the Mediterranean, including a day trip to Bari to see the Basilica of St. Nicholas. The cruise is organized by Tim Conahan, one of the founders of School for Santas, which trains professional Santas, and someone who has been playing Santa since 1969. He says that he heard about other industries like, you know, doctors and real estate agents having conferences on cruise ships, so he told the New York Times, why not Santas? Quoting the Times, Aboard the ship, Santa Tim organizes lectures and workshops covering logistical topics like the proper cradling of a baby, correct hand placement for the preemption of lawsuits, and beard bleaching, as well as more philosophical topics such as how to be true to the teachings of the historic St. Nicholas. For the cruise-goers, Santa is a way of life. Santa Marcel painted his fishing boat in bright red and green and named it Santa Sleigh. Mrs. Claus Debbie and Santa John renewed their vows for their 45th anniversary in North Pole, Alaska, dressed in Santa-themed outfits. End quote. And this, it turns out, isn't even the only Santa cruise. C. Brian Smith over at Mel Magazine actually joined in on a Santa cruise a few Januaries ago, traveling to Ensenada, Mexico with a few dozen Santas for the 23rd annual reunion of the Fraternal Order of Real Bearded Santas, a national organization with local chapters all over the U.S., which also happens to be a bit of a rival of Conahan's group. Conahan was there in the early days helping found the Fraternal Order of Real Bearded Santas, but left after some infighting caused in part by his increasing dealings with Hollywood opportunities, and that is just the tip of the iceberg for some of the drama in the group that got deep enough it was even covered on This American Life back in 2008. Link in the show notes if you want to learn more, but a warning that it could spoil your image of all of these Santa Claus surrogates. For now, I will just leave you with this image from one of the cruises that, to me, truly says Christmas in July. Quoting Mel, After dinner, the party continues when I bump into Santa Glenn Bailey, who is lugging a big blue bag over his shoulder and walking into the Illusion Dance Club midship. It's always been a dream of mine to have an all-Santa ukulele band, he explains, opening his bag to reveal a dozen or so miniature guitars. Soon, the club is filled with a bunch of Santas who are surprisingly adept at playing the ukulele. End quote.
All right, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.